Greetings, friends and brethren. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God. What I'd like to do is the second part of a two-part series we did about the Sardis church era. In the first uh, sermon, we went over certain things about starting in the uh, late 1500s, early 1600s, we went through some early leaders, etc. What I'd like to do today is give a little bit of background on Sardis itself, but then look at some of the issues that face the Sardis Church, particularly associated with the Seventh-day Baptists, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, and the Church of God Seventh Days. So as far as some background goes, Sardis itself was founded in the 12th century uh, uh, BC. It was one of the oldest and most important uh, cities in Asia Minor. It was located about uh, 35 miles southeast of Thyatira. Uh, my wife and I had been there, by the way. Uh, Sardis was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, uh, and Lydia was one of the richest kingdoms of the ancient world. According to reports, the citizens there became overconfident and proud. The word Sardis uh, means those escaping or, or that which remains. Some people say that Sardis was really the city of death, and if you go to Sardis, there's almost nothing there. It was basically a heap of ruins, but they did rebuild a gymnasium building. It's the biggest thing that I happened to see. And it had a major earthquake in uh, the year uh, 17 AD, and it hasn't really uh, recovered uh, from there. As far as the warnings that the Bible has to Sardis, and we did cover some of these last time, but I do want to go back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. And again, read what it says, uh, what Jesus said, uh, told John to tell uh, the people of the church at Sardis. Jesus said, Revelation 3, starting verse 1, uh, New King James Version of the Bible. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things say he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Well, what was the name that they were alive? would be Church of God or Church of Christ. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. And when we go through this, you're going to see certain things happen and certain things in terms of beliefs that died. Remember, therefore, how you've received and heard. Hold fast and repent. If you will not watch, you not pay attention to, amongst other things, biblical prophecy, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what our... I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father, before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The Spirit says to the churches. As I say, in the previous sermon, I've spent a lot of time going over things in the 1500s, 1600s, and uh, 1700s. And in the 1700s, and particularly in the 1800s, a lot of changes set in amongst people who were claiming Christ who kept the Sabbath. The Seventh-day Baptist movement basically overtook uh, many in America and other places. And many of those who were in the Sabbatarian churches did become Seventh-day Baptists. Uh, they've documented a lot of these changes uh, in their books, and I've read... Uh, various books and writings from the Seventh-day Baptists. 
And I want to start off, however, uh, from something from uh, 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 Duggar and Dodd, a book, uh, History of True Religion. Uh, they were associated with Church of God's Seventh Day. It says, Now all this enmity among the Seventh-day men arose against me originally from a noted Seventh-day man. Well, this is, oh, okay, He's, this is quoting, they're quoting William Davis, who was a Sabbatarian Baptist. About 20 years ago, they posed me in principles on the immortality of human souls and afterward proceeded to differ me about my faith in Christ and the Trinity, who, having poisoned several other Seventh-day men with a mortal and atheistical notion, set them against me, he secretly conveyed this drench over to Weatherly, Westerly to the persons before named who complying with him in their judgments in the associate and anti-Trinitarian era drank it in greedily before I came to them. So basically what's happening is William Davis, a Seventh-day Baptist, so he's a Baptist, did not like the fact that there were Sabbatarians who did not believe in immortality of the soul and who were anti-Trinitarian. And uh, Actually, Duggar and Dodd, uh, not only them, here's something from uh, a book from uh, a descendant of William Davis. It says, My great-grandfather, William Davis, came from England around 1685 and preached the Seventh-day Baptist Church in Westerly, now Hopkinton. Now, they weren't officially called the Seventh-day Baptist Church then. That happened, didn't happen until 1818. So that's one thing you got to be careful when you look at Seventh-day Baptist literature. They claim these churches were Seventh-day Baptist churches, and some of them were in actuality, but not in name. Like this one. The, Hoppington, the first Seventh-day Baptist church in America, except the one in Newport, Rhode Island. The church in Hoppington was constituted, and he preached in this church for a year or two, uh, and then made arrangements to go back to England. He went to Newport, engaged in the passage. Before the ship sailed, the church sent him a committee and persuaded him not to go. So he returned to Hoppington and he preached for them until some of the church fell out with him because he preached the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, if the church fell out with him because he preached the doctrine of the Trinity, that means these Sabbatarians were not keeping the doctrine of the Trinity. Therefore, he left them, and he went to Pennsylvania and spent some time in New Jersey. He died somewhere out in that country. So this guy saying, my great-grandfather ran into people, Sabbath keepers, who were anti-Trinitarian, right? Because they weren't Baptist. Now, there are other uses of a difference between uh, the, the uh, Sabbatarians and what became the Seventh-day Baptists. Uh, one is that Church of God people have tended to call themselves Church of God or Church of Christ. And those who were Seventh-day Baptists tended to do that until the end of the 1700s. And they started to call themselves Seventh-day Baptists. And uh, let me read something from Randolph's book. See, this, yeah, I have this book here, A History of Seventh-day Baptists, West Virginia. Pretty thick book, but there's one of them here. He talks about the book of records of the settlement of the proceedings of the Church of Christ in October 1745. Well, that particular church 
was the church of God, called itself the church of God, keeping the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus Christ, living in Piscataway, Hopewell, in the province of New Jersey, being assembled with one accord, house of Benjamin Martin, Piscataway, the 19th day of August, 1705. So, basically, he's calling them, the, he meaning the uh, uh, Randolph, is calling these people Seventh-day Baptists, but even in 1745, they didn't call that term. And actually, in 1774, the Sabbatarian Shrewsbury Church called itself Church of God, according to another source I went. But that changed. In 1775, that church called itself, so the next year after 1774, Church of God. 1775 was called the Seventh-day Baptist Church inhabiting Shrewsbury Township, according to Randolph. But his denomination itself did not decide to call themselves that until 1818. Now I should also mention that the writings in 1745 call church leaders titles such as elder, ministering brother, but never reverend. Now we, uh, Church of God, uh, still use the term elder. And those that uh, became Seventh-day Baptists originally used the term elder, but that seemed to change in the latter half of the 1700s. So here's some records from that Shrewsbury Church, again from this particular book. So John Davis, chosen elder, July 19th, 1746. And that it was after the, again, the second half of the 1700s they started to use the term uh, elder. However, they now refer to John Davis, one who was called an elder, or Davis an elder, they could now call him reverend in this book, even though that's not what it's called. You don't have to go there, but in Psalm 119, verse 9, in the uh, uh, King James Version of the Bible, it says, He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. His name meaning God's name, not uh, clerics, ministers. It's God's name that's supposed to be revered. The Bible doesn't say it's proper to revere uh, some man. Anyway, the records of Piscataway Church, chosen in 1850, didn't call themselves Seventh-day Baptists, they called themselves the Church of God, and they called their elders elders. Another change that occurred in the Seventh-day Baptist movement is their original uh, church buildings looked like houses. And most of them did not have any steeples. And now, to the best of my knowledge, no Church of God has ever built these, any steeples on their churches because that was kind of a holdover from uh, Sun God and Phalic worship. Now, in this particular book, they've got sketches on zillions of pages here, and they're not going to go through all of them, that show that their buildings did not have steeples. But you can see this one here, it does. Uh, they changed to look more like the Protestants. Now, I actually don't know what the interiors of current Seventh-day Baptist church look, uh, Seventh-day Baptist ch uh, churches look like, because uh, my, although my wife uh, Joyce and I actually tried to go into a couple of them, we visited a couple of them in California, but the ones that we visited happened to be rented from somebody else. So we don't know exactly what they use. Uh, but in the early times, we know they did not have crosses or any other type of images. And that's proven by this particular book.
Now, interestingly, as late as 1811, the bulk of those starting to be called Seventh-day Baptists weren't Trinitarian. Here's something from one of their scholars, their historians, by the name of Henry Clark, and this is from Clark's book. As this denomination universally holds the Bible contains God's holy word, I conclude they believe in one God, the Father, maker of all things, sin accepted, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, or the Jesus Christ, the Son of God, also in the Holy Ghost as the operative power or spirit of God. But there are few, if any, of this denomination that believe that Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are absolute distinct persons, co-equal, co-essential, co-eternal gods, yet but one God. That such an idea would be in the face of Scripture and repugnant to right reason. So here we have a historian who was a member of Seventh-day Baptist back in the 1800s wrote that bulk of our people are not Trinitarian. That would be repugnant. It's against the Bible. But that was something that the Seventh-day Baptists uh, picked up. They changed. And in 1833, they put out a document called Exposé of Sentiments, and they became Trinitarians. Now, they weren't a particularly large church. They claimed their conference was organized in 1802 and had uh, 1,130 members. And then later, in uh, 1873, they say they had about 80 churches and 8,000 uh, uh, members. And the reality is it became more Protestant. Uh, it grew. As far as Protestantism goes, we have a free book online at the ccog.org website. Go to the literature tab under books and booklets so you can find it. But any other books other than this one, which is not our book, I hold up available free at the ccog.org website. Anyway, this particular book explains why we in the Continuing Church of God are not Protestant and a lot of errors of Protestantism, including Trinitarianism, uh, the immortality of the soul, misunderstandings about salvation, God's plan, uh, God's holy days, etc., etc. And by eight... Now, this is how we differ from the... Another way we differ from the Seventh-day Baptists, by 1808, the Seventh-day Baptists considered the Protestants to be true Christian brothers, according to this book. Uh, we don't see it that way. We consider that most Protestants are sincere people, but don't fully understand the truth of God, and so we put out some literature, like this book, to try to assist those who really love the truth, want the truth, and really believe in Sola Scriptura. We urge them to go over, or get over, false doctrines based on traditions and misunderstandings and misinterpretations of Scripture. Now in 1825, the Seventh-day Baptist Church temporarily put somebody out of the ministry who took, taught against the immortality of the soul. And we in the Church of God have always done that. Um, another issue with the Seventh-day Baptists, uh, some believed in military service, some did not. Uh, we in the Continuing Church of God do not. I'd like to read something from a, a late Church of God historian uh, by the name of uh, uh, Richard Nichols, who uh, I used to work with a little bit. And this is from his book, uh, History of the Seventh-day Church of God. Seventh-day Baptists cannot val val validly claim exclusive ownership of the history of the Sabbatarians. And that's correct. They, they try to make it sound like our people were their people. But Nichols gets this next part right as well. Seventh-day Baptists 
today do not agree doctrinally with their Sabbatarian ancestors. And you put an exclamation point. Actually, today's faithful Church of God brethren are doctrinally closer to early English and American Sabbath keepers than they are today's, to today's liberal Seventh-day Baptists. Early American Sabbatarians rejected the Trinity and mortal soul teaching. The eschewed hated Christmas and Easter promoted their faith much more than the Seventh-day Baptists do today. They traced their spiritual ancestry through the English Lollers, Waldensians, and the first century church. The oldest existing uh, Seventh-day Baptist church, the Milliard Church in London, uh, began during the 1600s, and again, that may have been uh, in the late 1500s. They always kept Passover, Lord's Supper, on the 14th, but no, pretty much almost no Seventh American Seventh-day Baptists do this. And he also tells another story. Uh, that first one was actually from Six Papers in History Church. God, this is from his history of the Seventh-day Church. It says, on June 12, 1922, this is during the Sardis era, Prince of Ethiopia, now I'm going to really get this name wrong, Wixzerzerd Shaloerzilzisi, accompanied by his secretary, Elder Robert St. Clair, he arrived in Stanbury, Missouri. This is where uh, Church of God Sunday was headquartered then, where he spoke to audiences several nights. How he came there was not know. He was well educated, and he was quite a musician. And in uh, 1922, it was said that uh, Ethiopia kept Sabbath as a nation, and many had uh, tenets of faith similar to the Church of God. And by the way, we have in the Continuing Church of God. Uh, uh, one or two or more congregations actually over in Ethiopia. Anyway, while in Stanbury, the prince presented uh, two Bible was presented two Bible home instructors, which is literature that the old Church of God sent days to put out, which he uh, prized highly. And uh, he uh, gave uh, Andrew Duggar some insight into facts of early church history. He learned the earth, that the Sabbath, the Ethiopian church, they were Sabbath keepers, and they date their origin from 700 years before Moses. They called themselves Church of Christ and Church of God. And that's where Duggar learned originally, apparently, that uh, in the United States, or in the Americas, they weren't the Ameri United States, called the United States then, they, the SDBs are churches that they claimed originally called themselves Church of God, and this got Duggar to get more interested in, in doing all this stuff. Now, when I was going through a lot of the history, this book being one of them, I found that uh, there was at least one group called Pine Grove or South Fork Church that had became a Seventh-day Baptist congregation around 1839-1842. And a, leader, a new leader came over, he taught practices more like the Church of God in the later 1800s, such as Passover the 14th according to this book, and foot washing, and avoiding swine as food. And so they had a split in 1871, and the Seventh-day Baptist portion became known as the Ritchie Church. And the so-called mother group uh, didn't uh, apply to become part of the Seventh-day Baptist Southeastern Association when it formed in 1872. So what happened was there seems to have been an effort from the Seventh-day Baptists to get all the Sabbatarians together that they could in the early 1800s. 
and some groups started to come together, but then when they found out that to be a Seventh-day Baptist, you were supposed to eventually be a Trinitarian, uh, eat unclean meat, etc., this caused problems. But remember, back then they didn't have the internet, didn't have uh, communication as well, so everybody didn't know what everybody didn't teach, because they didn't all know it. In time, uh, this became clearer and clearer. Anyway, during the 19th century, there was a clear separation from those in the Church of God to those who were known as Seventh-day Baptists, as well as those who were uh, later known as uh, in the 1800s as uh, Seventh-day Adventists. Now, in the early 1800s, uh, there arose John Cottrell. And although he was considered to be a Seventh-day Baptist, he wasn't one. Now, here's a report about them, from, about him. Uh, this is from an Adventist source. Cottrell is nearly 80 years old. He remembers the dark day of, eight, of 1780. and has been a Sabbath keeper for more than 30 years. He was formally united with his Formal, formerly united with the Seventh-day Baptists, but in points of doctrine that differed from that body. He rejected the doctrine of the Trinity, also the doctrine of man's consciousness between death and resurrection, and the punishment of the wicked in eternal consciousness. He believed the wicked would be destroyed. So John Cottrell had Church of God doctrines. As I said, some of these groups that were loosely affiliated with the Seventh-day Baptists didn't realize what was going on with them. And when they did, they split. Uh, John Cottrell, based on a comment from his son Roswell, considered himself part of the Church of God. And he didn't have association with the group known as the Seventh-day Baptists for presumably decades because of differences in doctrine. However, when he was elderly, he got influenced by one of his kids. He did become a, a Seventh-day uh, Adventist. Now, I want to go over a 20th century report regarding the Church of God and the Seventh-day Baptist and Seventh-day Adventists. This is from the late Worldwide Church of God evangelist, Dean Blackwell. True Church versus Seventh-day Baptist. Another congregation of early Sabbatarians settled on the South Fork of the Hughes River in West Virginia, in Ridge County. That's what I was talking about. Among them were leaders who led contrary to the Sabbatarians then known as Seventh-day Baptists. Of these Christians, it's recorded that they taught the obedience to the ceremonial law enforced on the church contrary to the faith of the Seventh-day Baptist denomination, abstinence from certain meats, peculiarities of dress, and urged the church to be governed by uh, the elders exclusively. So they weren't Seventh-day Baptists. And here's something I want to make clear, and this is one of the reasons I want to point from Dean Blackwell. We used to think the Adventists had originally been a branch of the true church, but they never were, as we found their own writings now searching. They never were, just like the Seventh-day Baptists never were the true church. I mention this because if you have a Worldwide Church of God background, and many of the groups that came out of the Worldwide Church of God, they have an improper understanding of history. They have their church coming from the Seventh-day Baptists and the Seventh-day Adventists, where we in the Continuing Church of God say, no, that's, we did not come from the Millerite movement associated with the Seventh-day Adventists. We didn't come from the Seventh-day Baptists. We were there. Heretics uh, started to gain control and influence people. Again, the Seventh-day Baptists didn't become officially Trinitarian until 1835. Okay? Using those as an example. Now, as far as the Seventh-day Baptists go, here's a report on them from the uh, 21st century. 
this is what, what uh, Rob Apple, ex uh, executive director of their general conference, said. He, he asked, what day did Christ go to church on Saturday? Okay, let's be Christ-like. But Saturday worship is not a definitive marker of which the word church is willing to fight. It's not a big thing, said Apple. We're Baptists. We have a different day of the worship. Uh, and so the, basically they uh, also let the idea of women's ordination be up to individual congregations. But that's not consistent with the Church of God or the Scripture. Uh, women are not to be ordained as uh, ministers. And so the current Seventh-day Baptists basically are Protestants who tend to go to church on Saturday. But they're still Protestant, which means they're not Church of God. I mentioned the Millerites and the Adventists. Um, the late Dr. Herman Hay uh, reported this about his understanding. He wrote that in 1843, several followers of William Miller in Washington, New Hampshire, became acquainted with the truth of the Sabbath. It was not until after the miserable disappointment of 1844, however, that the general body of Adventists had the Sabbath question called to their attention. A small number accepted the Sabbath and soon united with the few remaining Church of God brethren who refused to be affiliated with the Seventh-day Baptist Conference. Now, Dean Blackwell, who's, who later said the Seventh-day Baptists Seventh Baptist were never part of the Church of God, and that's right, he wrote, Adventist Movement, William Miller, an earnest prophetical student and minister, was the main leader in the movement of 1835 in which the second coming of the Lord was set. He had great enthusiasm for Christ's return and partial knowledge of prophecy. It led him to believe the Lord would come back in 1844. The year 1844, year of disappointment, in that year, James White began publishing The Messenger at Rochester, New York. The name of the paper was changed to the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald. But that wasn't the location of the true church at all. Now some affiliated to the Millerite movement, like uh, James and Ellen White, they got exposed to the Sabbath and adopted it, as did some from a group that were called the Christian Connection. The Christian Connection was not Church of God, but it did hold a certain Church of God doctrine, such as anti-Trinitarianism. Now, Ellen G. White claimed to be a prophetess, and she came up with explanations that those in the Church of God could not accept about why Jesus didn't come and the Millerites thought she should come. Basically, she claimed to get 2,000 visions from God. But regarding this Millerite disappointment, she incorrectly said that Jesus really did come then, but it was on the Day of Atonement, and he went from one sanctuary to another. But the problem with that was the Day of Atonement was a month earlier, and so Mrs. White's vision was totally false. But that's an explanation that the Seventh-day Adventists still accept today. But the Millerite movement was wrong. We need Church of God, particularly continuing Church of God. No, we were never part of the Millerite movement. Our ancestors were not part of the Millerite movement. It doesn't mean that there could have been some people affiliated with the Millerite movement that came over in our direction, but we did not come from the Millerite movement. We preceded it, and in the sermon I gave a week ago on uh, Sardis, I talked about early leaders, of ones that we had from uh, around 1616, 1617, uh, up to uh, modern times, so, which was way before the Millerite movement. And we also, and I'll do this in another sermon, 
and go through our list of people essentially from Apostle Peter uh, to present. Now, Ellen White didn't like people in the Church of God, and here's something that she said in her testimony for the Church, number six. No name which we can take will be appropriate, but that which accords with our profession makes us a peculiar people. The name Seventh-day Adventist carries a true feature of our faith in the front and will convict the inquiring mind. I was shown that almost every fanatic who has arisen who wishes to hide his sentiments that he may lead away others claims to belong to the Church of God. Such a name would at once excite suspicion for it's employed to conceal the most absurd errors. So she considered people who call themselves Church of God fanatics and uh, Again, there was another attempt for organization. First, there was a Seventh-day Baptist, and the Church got people, oh, they, they're not it. And at first, because the people who later became known as Seventh-day Adventists, one, weren't called Seventh-day Adventists originally, two, uh, had various Church of God doctrines, including anti-Trinitarianism, which the Adventists later changed, they're now Trinitarian. Uh, a lot of small congregations, independent congregations, thought, okay, well, we could affiliate with this group, until they heard more and more about Ellen White's stuff. And then, they, then obviously they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that, they couldn't do that, and they didn't. Now, as far as continuity, there's a family called the, the Cottrell family. And you know some have said uh, the Church of God just popped up because of the Millerite movement, or with Herbert Armstrong. Uh, we were criticized continuing Church of God because we didn't uh, declare until uh, 2012. But as I mentioned, we can trace our ancestry all the way back. Now, there's an interesting family called the Cottrell family. And they have a, a, a history of being called heretics uh, from hundreds and hundreds of years. After various persecutions, Pope Leo IX decided that uh, killing people associated with the Church of God, that wasn't the way to go. Then in 1179, under a, a, another uh, pope, uh, Alexander uh, III, I think, they decided to uh, change the rules a little bit. And so they had this uh, Third Lateran Council, and they first off talk about uh, Leo. They said, as Saint, they call him, Saint Leo says, Church should be satisfied with the judgment of the priest and should not cause the shedding of blood. It's helped by the laws of the Catholic princes that people should seek remedy that a corporal punishment will overtake them. For this reason, in various regions, we have a loathsome history, heresy, of some who are called Cathars, some Paterines, and some uh, Publicani. And some Church of God people were called uh, Cathars and Paterines, etc. Others by different names. They've grown so strong that they no longer practice their wickedness in secret and it's becoming public. Uh, and they're not supposed to receive a burial among the Christians. And so, um, with regard to the Bramiters, Navarese, Bast, Cotterelli, etc., who practice uh, such things on Christians, basically they're not supposed to get communion with the church, and we're supposed to basically do economic block boycotting against them. Well, this Cotterelli family was from Italy, and they ended up going over into England. Well, anyway, 
The famous Inquisition in uh, 1233 in southern France began there when Pope Gregory IX charged the Dominican order to wipe out the Cathari, who we just read about, uh, which basically means the same thing as uh, Puritan. So their idea of not being violent against people they didn't like didn't stay too long. Anyway, there's a long history of various leaders in the church in Europe and in the Church of Rome trying to kill our people or get rid of them. Now, I'm going to read uh, something else uh, about this in just a moment. R.F. Cottrell of California wrote to uh, somebody named W.A. Spicer. From the earliest records we possess, the Cottrells were an Albigensian family in southwest France. So they went from Italy to France. In 1178, Pope uh, Alexander III issued in the name of the Catholic Church, a decree of extermination against them. And I quote part of it, and he goes through the, the list. In this part, he quotes the same thing I do, except he calls them Cotterells, not Cotterelli. And then he continues here, the Cotterell family of England were all descended, as far as we know, from John Cotterell, the Norman, who was one of the few survivors of the Albigenses of southern France. He escaped into northern France and thence to England. Uh, he was given a tract of land in Middlesex County. In 1638, two years after the founding of the Rhode Island by w Roger Williams, Nicholas Cottrell settled in Rhode Island. And it says, Our pioneer R.F. Cottrell was sixth in line, we were told, from that Nicholas Cottrell. In the 300 years, several Seventh-day Baptist preachers came out of the Cottrell line. Okay, well, as I said, they were uh, not Seventh-day Baptists, although some other Cottrells did become Seventh-day Baptist. Now here's something from a, another uh, source. When the Millerites were preaching around the second, uh, about the, preaching the second advent of Christ, uh, R.F. Cottrell was 30 years old. He believed in the personal coming of Christ, but he didn't trust the Millerite preaching. I saw the proclaimers of the advent in darkness with regard to the commandments of God and bowing to an institution of the papacy. This is the reason I didn't believe. So we've got Cottrell saying, look, we didn't, we're not part of the Millerite movement. And this is important because many falsely believe the Church of God came from the Millerite movement. We did not. You can read it all over the internet. So-called experts as well as other anti-Church of God people will go out and say this. But it's simply not true. And uh, R.F. Cottrell was a Sabbath keeper uh, before the Millerites. Now, Roswell Cottrell wrote that the Christian denomination anticipated a message concerning the fall of Babylon. They thought the Protestant churches were at least part of that great city. Uh, and so maybe some had come out. But now, by the way, the Seventh-day Adventists consider themselves Protestant. He says, My father and an uncle of mine and my brother and my, and my mother succeeded from the Seventh-day Baptist church and became independent from them. The doctrines also of destruction instead of eternal consciousness, misery for the wickedness, the premillennial uh, personal reign of Christ on the earth, since denominated, age to come, uh, cry of Babylon, chief things that led to separation. They became preachers, and I may, if I may call it Seventh-day Christian Church. Some would join with them, and some 
some had come around today on Easter Sunday. We they were part of us then, and it says uh, they were in a region. They were actually known as Cotrolites. So if you put this all together, what we have is a family that was keeping uh, Sabbath for a long time. Richard Nichols, who went on various uh, sources, said that the Cottrells descended from a long line of Sabbath keepers. They were an Albigensi family in southwestern France. The Cottrell family of England was descended from John Cottrell the Norman in about the 1638 stuff. The Cottrell name is found among Church of God people, later Seventh-day Baptist people in America. John Cottrell was a member of the Buzzard Church in Newport, Rhode Island. Nicholas and Dorothy Cottrell were members of the Westerly, Westerly Church in 1712. They uh, separated from the Seventh-day Baptists because they didn't agree with things, and they were called soul sleepers, which is what we're derisively called as well. But in uh, 1851, through Joseph Bates and Samuel Rhodes, Roswell and his father uh, became Adventist, uh, even though Roswell before said he stood for the term Church of God. Uh, and one of the Cottrells, one by the name of uh, uh, Libius Cottrell, uh, became stayed with Seventh-day Baptist. And there's uh, something, a letter to the editor I want to read from 1854, George Cottrell wrote to the Messenger of Truth, which was a publication denounced by the Seventh-day Adventists. He wanted back issues. And regarding Ellen White's visions, he wrote, the visions never were any help to me in believing present truth. I do not think they should be a test of Christian fellowship, and I think many are seeing it so. So a lot of Cottrells actually had concerns about the Seventh-day uh, Seventh Adventists. Now as far as the Church history goes. I should mention that I saw Nicholas Cottrell's name in a list of mainly uh, male immigrants who settled in New England uh, that were Sabbath keepers in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, so I always had a concern: Do we have laying hand of hand succession from the old world to the new world? And when I went through ship manifests, because I was curious, would Sabbath keepers be willing to? take a ship voyage, which had to include the Sabbath, because you couldn't get from, let's say, England to New England. Uh, it took a long time, uh, including very many Sabbaths. And the reality was that they were, and I went through and I looked at it, and I found that to be the case. So anyway, there, for at least a couple of centuries, there were Sabbath-keeping family in Americas who came from Europe. And by the way, I've talked to many of the Cottrells. Uh, well, maybe not many at least three or four. I've talked to several in the last year or so. I've talked to Stanley Cottrell to confirm a bunch of this stuff about his family uh, from the 12th century to present and all this kind of stuff. And uh, talked to some other, a couple other Cottrells also. And uh, heard about one in uh, Canada that were with the old uh, Worldwide Church of God. Anyway, now I want to get more up to uh, the uh, Church of God uh, uh, Seventh-day issues. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists uh, wrote some stuff about a group in, uh, in, in Marion. So let me read about this. The Marion party adopted the name Church of God. While retaining Sabbath observance, they differed in their understanding of the millennium, favoring an earthly millennium at which time Christ's presence on the earth 
all, uh, all mankind will be converted. They promoted keeping the Old Testament feast days, advanced the unscriptural notice, notion that Christ died on Wednesday and arose Saturday afternoon, having spent 72 hours, three whole days and nights in Joseph's tomb. An offshoot of this church formed, adopting the name Church of God Seventh Day. Now this is from an Adventist source. And there, so you can see differences here between the Seventh-day Adventists and the Church of God. Because we do believe in an earthly millennium that will last a thousand years. We do believe we should avoid biblically unclean meat. Well, that's so the Adventists, I'm sorry, that wasn't the difference. We do believe we're supposed to keep the biblical holy days. And we do believe that Jesus died on a, a Wednesday and rose Thursday, Saturday afternoon. And that he spent uh, three days and three nights in the tomb, just like he said. Jesus is the one that said, as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, he's going to, Jesus is going to do the same thing in, in, the, in, the, in the dirt, in the earth. But the Adventists don't believe that. I think that's bizarre, but they don't. Now, we do not teach that all will be converted during the millennium, but we do believe that uh, uh, many will be. Now, I want to read something else from Richard Nichols. He wrote, Seventh-day Adventists, history states that Church of God Seventh-day was actually an early offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists. But Church of God historian Andrew N. Duggar dogmatically contradicts this by saying that Sabbath-keeping Adventists were originally known as Church of God people, and that those who on October 1860 formed the Seventh-day Adventist Church at Battle Creek, Michigan, are a branch from and withdrew from the original church, the Church of God. In other words, the, the Seventh-day Church of God believes the Seventh-day Adventists withdrew from them, and the Seventh-day Adventists believe the Church of God withdrew from the Seventh-day Adventists. A modern Seventh-day Church of God minister and Seventh-day Adventist minister concur on a more liberal viewpoint. In the early 1860s, the two groups parted their ways, and that's what happened. Throughout history, the Church of God Seventh-day and the Seventh-day Adventists have been in diametric opposition to each other. And by the way, uh, in this particular book, Hope of Salvation, How the Continuing Church of God Differs from Protestantism, I have a bit more about the Seventh-day Adventists. I'm not going to uh, go more into that in today's, much more in that in today's sermon, but there's more about certain false visions, false prophecies that Mrs. White had, and some other reasons why we in the Continuing Church of God are not Seventh-day Adventists. We never have been Seventh-day Adventists. We're never part of their movement. Now, it doesn't mean there weren't any people, small parts of the Church of God, who got had any affiliation. But when they finally realized what the Seventh-day Adventists were about, uh, the Church of God people, the true ones wouldn't be part of it. Anyway, basically those that became known as the General Conference of the Church of God, and formally in 1923, Church of God Seventh-day, they didn't accept Ellen White's visions and certain doctrines particularly that investigative judgment view, uh, which had to do with this atonement, Day of Atonement thing, that sanctuary stuff, and disagreed on the millennium, and as far as the age to come, and those type of things. And those things were imposed on groups that had some affiliation uh, with the whites, they wouldn't do it. So they we would, wouldn't be part of them. Anyway, because, have, because of some misreporting by people including Richard Nichols, some have erroneously thought that the true church adopted the name Church of God Adventist. As a matter of fact, when I was at Wikipedia, I noticed that that's what they consider churches like ours. 
this Church of God Adventist. But according to Robert Coulter, who I spoke to uh, last May, a year ago May, and then this past March, uh, so in 2021, there were some in Missouri who referred to themselves as Sabbatarian Adventists. They weren't Seventh-day Adventists uh, back in 1874. However, when that happened, this greatly upset the others in Missouri, and they quickly switched to, back to the term Church of God. So it was only one small part of the Church of God groups in the United States that temporarily called itself Adventist. The General Conference uh, never uses, calls itself Adventist, and I confirm that with, again, Robert Coulter. He was president of the Church of God Seventh-day Denver for 25 years. I have met him, um, and he's a historian, and I actually call him on a, sort of a regular basis, it seems, lately. Anyway, the different groups calling themselves Church of God, called themselves Church of God in 1884, the name was officially adopted by the General Conference. And then there were some people called the Longs, and Robert Coulter stated they would have wanted the name Church of God. And Robert Coulter got his lot of information from minutes of various conferences and other less published materials, along with some published sources. I mention that because if you think you're going to find all this stuff on the internet, you're not. Because he, what he did is he went through some stuff, he wrote his own book, but he had more information than what he put in his book, and that's what I was asking him about. Actually, once I, when I visited him, I actually went into the vault of their old uh, records uh, over there in Denver uh, several years back. Anyway, once Abraham and A.C. Long were, were part of the General Conference, uh, they, they became a lot more like the group that called itself Church of God Seventh-day in uh, 1923. Now, I have a lot of doubts about many of the early... Uh, uh, of the 19th and early 20th century claimed Church of God Seventh-day leaders. And I'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but basically what was going on, there was a loose confederacy out there. And some groups were Church of God and some were not. As far as where their members come from, here's something written by H.E. Uh, Carver to the Seventh-day Baptist. It was published in 1872 by the Seventh-day Baptist Sabbath Recorder. There are hundreds, perhaps thousands, of Sabbath keepers scattered all over the land from the Atlantic coast to the shores of the Pacific who do not belong either to your church organization or that of the Seventh-day Adventists. Some of these are lonely ones, having no church privileges. We still have that today. We have scattered people in the continuing Church of God that are close to, enough to others. Attempts at different times were made to combine these Sabbath-keeping elements to a distinct body, but as yet without success desired. Uh, maybe this would be a good time to quote something from the editor of the Bible Advocate of 1909. So some people have the mistaken idea that the members of the Church of God, or most of them, having previously been connected to Seventh-day Adventists, when the fact is that not many of them ever were. So the Church of God was not an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists like they like to say they were. Now as far as the General Conference, I have uh, Articles of Faith of the General Conference of the Church of God from 1888. 
We believe that, that God, the Creator, and Jesus Christ, the Son, the Redeemer, are personal beings. We believe that repentance, conversion, baptism by immersion, a, a godly life through faith in the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus and His mediatorship, mediatorship for us are the essential elements of salvation. We believe the law of God contained in the Ten Commandments forms the basis of a godly life, the standard by which we regulate it. We believe that man is mortal and has no consciousness in death. We believe there will be a resurrection of the righteous to everlasting life and the setting up of God's everlasting kingdom on the earth at the second coming of Christ. We believe there will be a resurrection of the wicked to a judgment of deeds done in this life, wherein life and probation them forever ceases, the prayer of faith for the sick, the ordination of ministers by the laying on of hands. Now they added something in 1892. We take the Bible and the Bible alone as our only rule of faith and practice. Okay, so that's something that they added, which of course what would have been good to do in the first place, but that's what happened. Now some of the leaders of the, that the current Church of God Seventh-day uh, in Denver except as their leaders, like Gilbert Cramner and Jacob Brinkerhoff, they were clearly Unitarian. That means they did not accept Jesus as divine. Uh, and we, in the Continuing Church of God, do not consider them part of our history, and we do not trace ourselves through them, nor the Millerite movements, nor the Seventh-day Baptist movement. On the other hand, we accept Church of God leaders like Abraham G. Long, uh, who was mainly from Pennsylvania. Now, Abraham Long was a Sabbath keeper before uh, James and Ellen White were, and he perhaps learned it from a Church of God type uh, congregation out of uh, Ritchie, or something along those lines. We, we really don't know where he heard about it. He became one. Um, anyway, he inquired about the Seventh-day Adventists, and he realized they weren't Church of God, by the way, after he reviewed uh, Ellen White materials. That's what uh, Robert Coulter told me. Again, you're not going to find that on the Internet except, well, stuff I'm writing. Because I had co telephone conversations with Robert Coulter about this, who had more information. Well, anyway, two of uh, Abraham Long's sons became a part of the Church of God ministry. And we trace our leadership mantle through people like his uh, son, A.C. Long, and prior to him, if you remember from the last sermon, we talked about somebody by the name of Asa B. Anyway, A.C. Long himself uh, was too young to have been a Millerite. He was not a Seventh-day Adventist. He was not a Unitarian because he taught the deity of Jesus. Okay, therefore, you have had what we would call a Binitarian or semi-Aryan view of the Godhead, which is what we, we have. Now, I want to read a report that uh, Richard Nichols put together. In 1871, there began to appear reports of A.C. Long doing missionary work in Missouri and Kansas. In 1872, he preached in Harrison and Worth counties, closer to Stansbury. Apparently, much of the Missouri growth was due to the preaching efforts of A.C. Long. In early 1874, he held three months of meetings in Harrison and Worth counties. At Martinsville, he garnered 17 converts and began a church. One meeting lasted three weeks, was held at the Union Schoolhouse near the Moore residence in Harrison County. Six converts were added, making 23 Sabbath keepers in the area. 
in 1900 A.C. Long, perhaps the leading Church of God minister since the 1870s, died. The Church of God member since 1860s, Long was born in uh, Perry County, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, anyway, I think you know, he argued for the deity of Christ. He would uh, seem to have our type of doctrine, so it's one reason we have him on our list. And uh, he wrote about the pre-existence of uh, Jesus as well. Okay. He argued. For, he he wrote, "Quote: Christ lived before Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am." John eight fifty eight. A. C. Long wrote, "Before he came to earth." Then he quotes John eight thirteen: "No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he who came down from heaven." Then he quotes John six verse sixty two. This looks like he's the old King James. What if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend from where he was before? The plain and obvious meaning of all these passages is that Christ had pre-existence before his birth to the Virgin Mary. And uh, Now his older brother was W.C. Long. And against the Trinitarian view of the Godhead, W.C. Long wrote, We do not believe that God, Christ, and Holy Spirit constitute one person. I want to read something about him and a songbook. E.G. Blackman of Neosho, Missouri, a former Seventh-day Adventist minister, was converted through the efforts of W.C. Long in 1886. So as I said, it's not that no Adventist ever came with us, but we weren't part of the Adventists. Anyway, uh, Blackman was a songwriter and became a leading minister in the Church of God. By January of 1893, he prepared a church hymnal called Songs of Truth. Most of the hymns therein were, as well as the music, were composed by Blackman. The new church hymnal went through several revisions, and the Black Book continued to be used for many years by the Church of God. As Keyes stated, the songs were slanted toward truth so that our people could freely sing them, not only with spirit, but understanding also. So, you know, our songs are based on our songbook. I'll go down and get this. Our Bible hymnal, the songs are based on the scriptures. So you can sing them and they're true. Mostly Psalms and uh, some passages from the other parts of the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. Anyway, regarding succession, A.C. Long was a pre-Civil War Sabbatarian. He seemed to have the succession mantle from around 1871 to around 1900. He was followed by his brother, W.C. Long, from probably about 1900-1905, succeeded by S.W. Menser, from 1905 to uh, uh, 1921. A. and Duggar, the same church which was renamed Church of God Seventh Day in 1923, he specifically claimed, by the way, to have the succession mantle. He said he taught apostolic succession, said he had the mantle. And he could have held it possibly from 1921 to 1933. Now there's another option, there's one other person, I'll get to him later. 1933 marked the end of the uh, uh, Sardis era's dominance. Because in 1933 there was a split. And the church organization, that church organization lost its mantle and it passed to Herbert Armstrong. Now, Herbert Armstrong had been part of the Church of God's Seventh Day. Then in uh, uh, 1934 he called it the Radio Church of God. Then in 1967 the Worldwide Church of God. And he held that mantle till his death. It was seemingly picked up by either uh, Rod Meredith or uh, Aaron Dean or DeBar Partian. Then, 
uh, and Jennifer Dean, they had, uh, they had been part of the uh, Radio Church of God, uh, Worldwide Church of God, uh, uh, Global Church of God, then ultimately the Living Church of God. Uh, the Bar Party died in uh, 2010. And uh, if, if Dr. Meredith had the mantle, he lost it uh, no later than uh, 2011. Uh, when I was anointed to receive a double portion of God's Spirit by a Living Church of God uh, minister who told me it was reminiscent of the passing of the mantle, and he confirmed that with me several months later, and he confirmed that with me years later as well. So some people have, on the internet, have lied and said that uh, I'm making this stuff up, but I met with him in front of witnesses, by the way, and he confirmed what I just said. Now let's go to something else, uh, getting back into the Sardis era. Andrew N. Duggar, son of Alexander Duggar, began his ministry, Church of God, in 1906. Uh, and he became the editor of Bible Advocate in 1914. During his tenure as president, Duggar exerted much influence on the church. Throughout the early period of Duggar's leadership, Church of God experienced some of its most rapid and greatest growth. And I've got a list of things uh, from information regarding the Church of God Seventh Day. Uh, they, they start from 1899. The General Conference was incorporated in Missouri. They changed the name of the magazine in 1900 from, uh, to actually to Bible Advocate, etc. And, and there was a meeting, part of their, here's part of their history. 1832, returning from, no, I'm going to go back. 1831, A. and Duggar visits Jerusalem, proposes it for the church's headquarters. Returning from Jerusalem, 1932, so 1931, Duggar moves to restore biblical organization. He wants uh, 12, 7, and 70. In 1933, meeting in Stanbury, Missouri, uh, the General Council divides over Duggar's candidacy for presidency, and he does his biblical organization. And that split was in 1933, and that's when the uh, Sardis era uh, started lost its dominance and the Philadelphia era began. Now, the Stanbury group eventually relocated uh, to Denver, Colorado. And that group does not teach apostolic succession. And again, they began, they claimed that their churches started actually with Gilbert Cramner in the 1800s. Now, the Church of God, Salem, West Virginia, which is where Ann Duggar went, they do teach succession from the apostles. Um, their literature suggests that they had a list, so I actually talked to the leaders over there, and then they found they didn't have a list. So I've provided them a list, by the way. Now, in the eighteen, excuse me, in the nineteen twenties, uh, when Duggar was there, Sardis seemed to have outreaches throughout the world. Church of God Seventh Day had works in Argentina, Australia, several Balkan states, Barbados, Bermuda, Bolivia, Canada, Costa Rica, China, Cuba. Dominica, El Salvador, England, Guatemala, Honduras, India, Jamaica, Japan, Mexico, New Zealand, Nicaragua, Norway, Palestine, Panama, South Africa, Sweden, Trinidad, USA, West Africa, and elsewhere. And when Duggar was there, they actually taught a fair amount about prophecy. But they're still pretty small. In 1927, uh, they had less than uh, uh, 2,000 members. And it says uh, 
1929 saw a downturn of events for them. From 1922 to 1929, converts never matched the increase uh, from uh, 1922. From then on, they, went, they didn't grow as much, but they did grow from time to time. Now, back in 1929, during the Sardis era, Herbert W. Armstrong wrote A. N. Duggar about certain points that Duggar, when he was Church of God's Seventh-day President, he admitted they were right. And I, and here's something that Herbert Armstrong wrote about it. So the only church I'd found so far that kept the commandments of God and testimony of Jesus Christ had the right name of the original church was this unknown little church, small publishing house in Stanbury, Missouri. So first part, I wrote 16 type written pages proven beyond contradiction certain points of doctrine proclaimed by this church were based on an erroneous understanding of several scriptures. It was an error. I mailed this to their headquarters. The answer came back, and their head man, an editor, and president, so that's Duggar, uh, admitted that their teaching was false and an error. But he explained he feared that any attempt to make this correction the false doctrine publicly confess the truth, many of the members, particularly of older standing and heavy tithe pairs, wouldn't, they wouldn't accept it. He was afraid they'd lose confidence in the church if it was found to be an error at any point. He was afraid they would withdraw their financial support to preach. So he's going to keep preaching a doctrine he thought was false. So this uh, shook my confidence considerably. The church leader, if not the church itself, is looking at the people as a source of belief instead of God. Now he said they were basically right. They had lots of stuff. But it wasn't, if it wasn't church, true church, where was it? And uh, Duggar wouldn't leave because he's afraid he wouldn't change. He's afraid of a, a split, and it ended up splitting in 1933. And you know, I I personally experienced something similar. I was in the Church of God that agreed that they had various errors. They were going to correct them. He said this was different. Duggar never said he would correct them. The leaders that I talked to said they would correct them, and they would correct them all, all the serious ones by January of 2012. But then in December 2012, they said they wouldn't correct them. And that's when I felt it was necessary to leave with them and that they could not possibly have the Philadelphia mantle. Anyway, as far as Herbert Armstrong and Church of God's Seventh Day, he said he continued to work in fellowship with their West Coast members of the Sardis era until 1942. And then as the church got bigger, he didn't do anything else with there. Anyway, he felt that 1933 was when Philadelphia began. Now, there are other groups out there, by the way. There's this group called uh, Jerusalem Seventh-day Church of God. They're a sacred name group. They try to insist that the Church of God has to be based out of Jerusalem in the end times. They don't properly keep Passover. They don't properly teach the Gospels of Witness. And they have a lot of prophetic errors. And they also made claims about some of the other Church of God Seventh-day groups that these groups denied when I called their leaders. So I thought that was, uh, you know, why would they say stuff about these groups? Because I went and I, I contacted uh, Church of God, Seventh-day Meridian, Idaho. I told you it was Robert Coulter, who I've spoken with many times, former president, Church of God, Seventh-day Denver. I also talked to uh, the two main leaders of Church of God, Seventh-day Salem, West Virginia. So I have a pretty good idea about what they were knew or didn't know, and they, this uh, Jerusalem Seventh-day Church of God, they didn't even, they'd never even heard of, 
They were shocked that supposedly they had agreed to things with them. They didn't even know who they were. Anyway, according to A.N. Duggar, who was a Sardis era leader, there were three unique teachings that separated the Church of God from the Protestant and, Ro and Greco-Roman Catholic groups. Uh, Seventh-day Sabbath being non-Trinitarian and teaching against the immortality of the soul. And he says that uh, the Church of God people were supposed to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Which is, if you've ever gone to the cogwriter.com website, you see that's the main scripture I have up there. You know, throughout, as far as the non-Trinitarian throughout history, uh, we find that the Church of God was a Vinitarian of some type. And here's what the Church, in August 1924, here's the Church of God Seventh-day officially wrote about the Godhead. The Church of God recognizes two divine beings called God, the Father and Jesus Christ, His Son. Okay, that's what we in the Continuing Church of God teach. This is from the General Conference Report Catalog of Minutes, August 1924, but this was quoted to me by Robert Coulter, who had the actual documents. And of course, it's not just Benetarianism. Uh, having Passover in the 14th seems to be something else that we've, we've seen throughout church history. And the Cramner era group didn't uh, do this originally, uh, although it was advocated to them in 1872, and eventually some of them do. Now, the Church of God... Uh, Seventh-day Denver and Church of God, Seventh-day uh, Salem, West Virginia, they do use uh, the 14th date, as do those remaining of the, as I'm aware of, in the Thyatira of Philadelphia and Laodicean portions of Church of God. Now, Church of God, Denver used to teach church errors, but now it does not. Church of God, Salem, however, does. Uh, Duggar and Dodd's... Uh, Writings endorsed a church as they did the history of the church. Now, not all during the Sardis era were officially part of one of these groups, as I mentioned before. Some were associated with them time, but left for doctrinal reasons. For skipping what happened in the 1700s, 1600s, 1800s, I want to go to the 1900s. Church of God-related leaders, such as uh, Greensbury G. Rupert, R.K. Walker, Frank Walker, and J.W. Rich taught Anglo-Israelism. Now, a lot of people are surprised to know that. Uh, so let me read some reports about that, because we teach that still. In 1920, R.K. Walker moved to Findlay, Oklahoma, met with Elder M.W. Unzicker at Sardis, Oklahoma, first church God man he'd met. Uh, he ended up being baptized, and he began preaching. And says that the Walkers, Rupert, and Rich held to Anglo-Israel beliefs. So did, so did Elder Ziegler, who put out a paper called The Torch of Israel, published in Washington, D.C. Rupert published his own paper called The Remnant of Israel, published in Britain, Oklahoma, beginning in 1915. Now, Rupert was a former Seventh-day Adventist minister, but he kept the annual Sabbaths or the Holy Days. He also taught a form of British Israelism. And in uh, December of 1919, Merritt Dixon of Longdale, Oklahoma, wrote a series of articles in The Advocate, and he said that England is Ephraim and America is Manasseh, and the, presumably the rest of the lost tribes are northwestern Europe. 
So these are not something that uh, Herbert Armstrong just came up with. And again, we see Church of God leaders in Sardis did believe this. Ian Duggar, however, agreed with it and wouldn't teach it. It was something else he wouldn't do. Now, Herbert Armstrong, as well as G.G. Uh, Rupert, felt that uh, what Christ said regarding uh, Church of Sardis applied uh, to uh, the Stansbury people. So let me read this. Rupert and Armstrong both held the Church of God's Seventh-day headquarters in Stansbury, Missouri, was the Sardis era of the church, while Stansbury believed itself to be the Laodicean era. Uh, getting back to Herbert Armstrong, there's some things he wrote in 1931. He says, uh, he had some meetings, and I realized I couldn't bear fruit as long as I teamed up with one of the ministers from these Stansbury people. And so I've been fellowshipping with the latter part of the Sardis era that was described, he says, in Revelation 3, verses 1 through 5, which I read at the beginning. Now, Herbert Armstrong taught later that there were at least 18 biblical truths that the original Church of God held that uh, were lost by the main body of Sardis, and that they uh, were addition to the unique ones that Ann Duggar mentioned. Now, G.G. Rupert was... Uh, had no distinct affiliation with the Duggar group, but he was always independent, but he had some distant connection. And he seems to have been succeeded by one called uh, John Stanford. Stanford wrote that Jesus comes at the end of 6,000 years, which is what we teach. And here's some stuff about him. So the meaning of the fall holy days was clearly expressed by John S. Stanford in the remnant of Israel in September 1929. After Rupert's death, Stanford apparently took real leadership of the movement. What happened to the paper after 1929 is not known. Run to Israel, page uh, 1 and 2. This article, Stanford proves the Saturday resurrection doctrine, the literal three days and three nights in the grave, which is again what we teach. And then September 30th article, talks about the Feast of Tabernacles. And then 1928 September issue, said it was wrong for Christians to vote. Now, the remnant of Israel was put out in 1930 and 31. So, uh, Nichols said it ceased in 1929. That wasn't quite right. And Herbert Armstrong taught many of the doctrines that G.G. Rupert and the John Stanford group taught. And as I related to voting, we don't vote. Now, I should mention that the Church of God, Seventh-day in Denver, admits that it changed some of its teachings. So let me read something that Robert Coulter wrote. There was a point in time when some ministers in Church of God taught that we were begotten, not born again. Well, that's what we teach, by the way, that we are begotten now and not born again at the resurrection. He said, but this is a temporary thing. It was like going through a phase. We abandoned that position years ago. So he's admitting that, yes, they made changes, and they made lots of other changes. You know, I'm, you know Jesus taught that to the Sardis people, you've got a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works first before God. Since Herbert Armstrong's death in January of 1986, the Denver group has more and more failed to strengthen those things. They've become more Protestant. And actually, in October 2003, uh, their then-president, uh, uh, Wade Rhodes, uh, said that talked about how great Martin Luther was, and we in the Church of God do not agree. You'll see we have a picture on this book of the statue of Martin Luther, and we go through the fact that Martin Luther did not believe in Sola Scriptura, 
anyway, the Denver group heads towards Protestantism, uh, but again, they do keep the Seventh-day Sabbath, they keep Passover on the 14th, they believe and keep the Ten Commandments, etc. They don't teach church errors anymore. And they uh, downplay prophecy. Uh, they've actually become uh, what's called preterist, which means they think many of the prophecies in Matthew 24, the Olivet Prophecy, have been fulfilled. That there's no future powerful beast of revelation. We're not supposed to have the persecutions to come that the Bible's talking about. And these all came to pass. Um, this is probably why I think passages such as Revelation 3, verse 3 applies to them, because Jesus warned them, you will not know what hour will come upon you. When you say all these things have already happened, uh, you're not going to know. Anyway, uh, as far as the Sardis Church era, uh, I think it does have a very interesting history, but for the most part it was pretty disorganized much of, the, much of its time until into the 20th century. And the separation of those who became known as Seventh-day uh, Baptists happened during this era of the church in the 18th and 19th centuries, as well as, you know, we know the Seventh-day Adventists uh, uh, popped up. They seem to have some distant contact with the Church of God, but again, we were never Seventh-day uh, Adventists, and we don't uh, uh, accept them as part of our church. Um, and over time, as Jesus said, the Sardis Church era lost more and more things. Sardis became less dominant in the 1930s, and that's when the Philadelphia era of the true church began to uh, rise up. If you want to know more about the history of the church, uh, we've got a free book, uh, The Continuing History of the Church of God. This goes into more depth and details about uh, all the church eras. It's pretty short, so it's not horrendously long. It quotes a lot of early Christian leaders that are Church of God leaders who hold doctrines that we in the continuing church of God hold to this day. This briefly goes through uh, various churches. But if you're Protestant uh, and you want a lot more information, and you know, the Apostle uh, Paul wrote, to prove all things, hold fast which is good, and to Thessal the Thessalonians, this book is for you. It has hundreds and hundreds of scriptures as well as historical quotes and references that you can demonstrate which is, which is the true church. Does Protestantism re represent it or does the Church of God represent it? Well, anyway, as far as church eras go, uh, the Sardis era was dominant for a time. There are remnants of it out there, but many of them are losing doctrine, in particular on the prophecy side. And unless they repent, they will not know uh, uh, about the hour that's coming as Jesus warned. Believe the Bible. Don't lose truth. Study your Bible. Retain truth. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.